If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter. First Peter 1, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethany, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him, you yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is his grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and his flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you.
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Glorious and merciful Father, creator of heaven and earth, sustainer of all life, redeemer of your people, we humbly approach you this morning. We come to your word because we know it is there we can learn of you and of the wonderful gospel you give in Christ Jesus. You have told us, if any of you lacks wisdom, we should ask you, the God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given us. There is no other like you, O Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word and its wisdom. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and for his guidance. Thank you for your for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for our lives in him. Amen. Peter opens this with some very important words. Let me read from the 1901 American Standard Version. To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What this statement does is establish beyond any shadow of a doubt that your salvation is found in the divine act of God choosing you. This foreknowledge, this is not God looking down the corridors of time to see who would exercise faith and then saving them. This is his action based on what he decreed prior to the creation of this world. God created it. God decreed what would be in his creation. God's election of you as his child is the first cause of your salvation. In theology, we hold what is termed first and second causes. What is a first cause? The first cause is the power behind the act. Take gravity, for instance. The mass of the planet causes other bodies to be drawn to it. Where did this mass get its ability to achieve this force? It came from the decree of God in creating this world. Thus, God is the first cause of all natural laws. The effect we see and feel is brought about by the second cause. In the case of gravity, the attraction of one mass to another. I can give you a different view of this by using something in the news. It's been in the news a long time. You're all familiar with the debate over gun control. There, is, there are those who want to take all guns away from people because they see the gun as a cause for murders. It is an instrument in a man's hand, or is it an attitude in his heart? Cain killed Abel thousands of years before there were any guns. The first cause of murder is to be found in the heart of the one committing the murder. The instrument used is the second cause. Taking away only the second cause does not prevent murders. The scriptures give us a good example of the first and second causes in Acts 2.23, where Peter speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. 
This clearly says the first cause of Christ's crucifixion was the set purpose and plan of God. The second cause was the wicked actions of men. We need to look at everything in terms of first and second causes. Why? Because we believe in a sovereign God who is in control of this world and in control of the affairs of men. Let's consider this in relation to your salvation and the teaching of salvation, the teachings of Scripture. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 teaches that the new covenant promises to give us new hearts and new spirits. Why do we need new hearts and spirits? Because our old hearts are made of stone and our old spirits are dead. So to begin this process of salvation promised in Jesus Christ, we're given both new hearts and new spirits. This is caused by the sovereign power of God. There's no other way. This is where we are regenerated, and it is the first cause of our salvation. Unless God acts first to change your heart, you will never be saved. The second cause is found in something else. He tells us about this new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He says not only will he give us a new heart and spirit, but he will also put his Holy Spirit in us to teach us to be obedient. Therefore, the act of your obedience becomes the second cause of your salvation. Please note, this is not done by your own power. So you can't boast because it's caused by God's power at work in you through the Holy Spirit. You can clearly see the first cause is the instigator of the second cause. This is what Peter is saying in verse 2 when he says, To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. This would include following the first command given as a believer, and that would be to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Paul told the Philippian jailer, when he asked in Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Your believing is important to the process, but it is the second cause and even then undergirded by the power of the Holy Spirit. In understanding first and second causes, you come to see that your salvation is exclusively the work of a sovereign God. But it is also inclusive of your own responsibility to believe on Jesus Christ. The men who crucified Christ were guilty of a terrible sin. Even though God had foreordained the very act they committed. God did not force them to commit the act. He simply used their sinful nature and action for his own purposes. You participate in your salvation, but it is exclusively the work of God, and you must never forget that very important fact. No one can be saved unless God first changes his heart. Then he acknowledges himself to be a sinner, one who is in need of a Savior. He then recognizes and acknowledges Christ as that Savior. 
In other words, both the first and second cause have to be in place for salvation to occur. It's necessary to have some understanding of all of this to really understand Peter's message this morning. In this passage, he exhorts you to live your life for God. First, because it is only through this effort to live for God that you will grow in your love for one another. Second, because you were born again to live an obedient life. Third, it is this message of grace and mercy that will stand forever. And fourth, it is only through holding on to these truths that you will be able to live in such a manner as to show your appreciation and love to God. Peter has urged you as a believer to be holy. Why? Because your God is holy. He then pleads with you to live your life in esteem to God. How do you accomplish this impossible task? You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is displayed for all to see by your loving one another. Verse 22. Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. There are four things. Four things in this verse you need to consider. First, he says, since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17 to the Father on behalf of his people. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How does God sanctify? He implants his spirit in the hearts of his people and the spirit teaches them to be obedient. How? By leading them into that truth through study of the word. So Peter is saying, you are a believer, therefore you have the Holy Spirit, which means you're being sanctified by the, by, by the truth. Yet, since God chose you to be sanctified by the Spirit and has given you the Spirit, you're already sanctified. Here we have the first cause, God, and the second cause, your obedience, shown side by side. God, once he begins a good work in a heart, doesn't stop until that good work is complete. And aren't we thankful of that? Amen. He is the sovereign, almighty God. He is the one who is in control of all things. Romans 8, 28 and 29 explains. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You must remember, the greatness of this Son was his obedience to the will of the Father. This is what you are being conformed to. Obedience. The second thing we must consider is a question. How do you attain this obedience? Peter lays out the second cause by obeying the truth. When you live in obedience to God's word, you're living in a sanctified state. You're living in purity. Please understand, you've been purified. How? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. 
you are being constantly cleansed by the fountain of his blood. But you also have a part in this cleansing. And Peter says it is in obeying the truth. Again, this must be understood as the second cause. It's your work. It's a work of faith. Peter teaches the same thing in Acts 15.9 as he addresses the Jerusalem Council concerning Gentile believers. He says, God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. What was the obedience the Gentiles demonstrated? They believed Peter's message. They believed on Jesus Christ. And by their faith in him, they were purified. The first cause was God's act of changing their heart. The second, their believing on Christ and his work. No one, absolutely no one, will be purified and come to the Father's presence without believing on Jesus Christ. The third thing is found in the words, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. There's only one way this can be done. That's through obedience to God's commands. He's echoing Christ's command. The command found in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Peter makes it clear. Not only are you to love them, but you must love them sincerely. Have you ever heard or maybe even said yourself, I know I have, So I'd imagine everybody else has. The Bible says, I have to love them, not like them. You've been guilty of that? Yes. Good. Glad somebody else has. This verse shouts down that idea. You are called to be obedient to God's word. And that means showing love to those who are in Christ with you. Not some easy outward kind of love that comes from the lips, but not sincere, not a sincere heart-driven love. The fourth thing you must get from this is found in the words, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, I know you all know how hard that is to do. Peter says, you have to love your fellow believers sincerely and deeply. It's an awful hard thing to to love someone sincerely and deeply that you don't like. Therefore, Peter places the responsibility clearly on the believer. Make sure, make sure you follow God's direct command. The command to put aside any and all prejudices and embrace everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ as a brother. Then let your heart feel, heart filled with his Holy Spirit guide you. As we all know, this is a very difficult thing to do. What makes it difficult is, is the letting go of yourself and accepting the love of God in your heart. Why do we fight against that so much? Because we want to be first. We've got to turn around and let Christ be first in our lives. It shows to those who are watching the absolute power of God in changing hearts from stone to flesh. It's a testimony. 
Isn't that what we're supposed to do is testify of Christ? Thus, making a perfect display of the first cause of your salvation, the grace of God through the second cause, your obedience. You are, as a believer, called to obey the word. Disobedience is a part of your salvation process. This, according to Peter, is the whole purpose behind your salvation. He says in verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You were saved. You were saved for a purpose. I hope you all realize that. You were saved for a purpose, and that purpose was obedience. You were saved by something that is incorruptible. The word of God. You were not saved by something corruptible, your own decisions. Clearly, he says, your salvation is the work of God, and he has used his word to accomplish his work, which is your salvation. This is a picture of the first and second cause working in you to accomplish one purpose, salvation. He makes it clear that obedience is essential because this word which saved you will be a part of eternal life because it, as the King James says, liveth and abideth forever. Believing the word of God is absolutely necessary. It is not something that is optional. If you have a new heart, if you have a new spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will hear the gospel and you will believe its message. The whole purpose of God's plan is to gather to himself a people that are known by his name. Not just to fill heaven, but to testify of him here on this earth daily. In fact, testifying of him is the very commission that you're called to obey. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commissioners, commissions all believers. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You could have this in terms of forensic and demonstrative. The forensic, the legal foundation of your salvation is, divine, is the divine act of God giving you a new heart and a new spirit. You are being born again, for it is only God who can justify anyone before his court. This heart change is then demonstrated by believing on Jesus Christ and becoming obedient to his word. This is the same thing we see in Paul and James when they speak of faith. Paul declares that we are saved by faith alone. This is the forensic, the legal definition of salvation. It is looking at your salvation prior to its conception. Before you're saved, the only way you can be saved is by faith and by faith alone. James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. This is demonstrative. It's looking back after you're saved. What's going on now? It's looking at salvation after it's conceived in the heart. You cannot have faith without it being demonstrated through believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We understand this in terms of first and second causes. This is the foundation of the message of salvation. How can any man know this message? Peter quotes very loosely 
from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, verse 6a through 8, he says, and I'm reading from the NIV, For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Men are nothing, absolutely nothing in comparison to God. You cannot do anything under your own power or by your own ability to stand before your God. Your best effort will leave you far short, short of where you, you, you must be to come into God's presence. You can't do it yourself, folks. Whatever you do lasts for only a moment. Then it all fades away. The only way any man can come into God's presence will be by God changing his corruption into incorruption. This begins when God gives him a new heart, puts a new spirit in him, but does not find completion at that point. The Holy Spirit's not there. That is not all that Scripture says is needed. The Scripture teaches that no one can come to the Father except they come through Jesus Christ. They also teach that no one can know Jesus Christ except they hear the word of God. And who is it that's given them that word? The Holy Spirit. Paul asked in Romans 10, 14, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He goes on in verse 17. Verse, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, we see the first and second cause side by side. God has to open the heart. He gives you ears with which to hear to finish the work. You have to hear the word of Christ and believe its message to have salvation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he adds, the word of God stands forever. You're not believing something that is fleeting as the things of man. This is the incorruptible seed. This is the everlasting word of God. It's interesting here, the word he uses for word in the Greek is rhema instead of logos, which is used in verse 23. These two words are very similar in meaning, and it's not inappropriate to use them as synonyms. Logos indicates more of a complete idea, whereas rhema is like a quick utterance. The idea Peter makes is that this word of God, this utterance of salvation, once declared by God, stands forever and nothing, or no one can ever remove it. His point is all in all of this is how important it is to know the message of God's word. It is this message and this message alone that offers to all believers hope of eternal life. Yes, that hope is grounded first in the sovereign act of God, but it is clear when Scripture says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Greek is very clear and specific. It does not simply tell us we can be saved. To do it that way would say man has the ability to save himself. It does not indicate 
that we may be saved. That would make our salvation unclear. It says we must be saved. This makes clear our salvation is the result of a divine act of God and it is in association with Jesus Christ and his works. It establishes the moral responsibility of believers to respond to the call of their Lord in order to come into salvation. True believers have no recourse to salvation except through Jesus Christ. The only place you can hear this message of, 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 of salvation and learn of the one who brings that message is in the scripture. What Peter is saying is you must know the message to have salvation. Peter makes a bold declaration in the last half of verse 25. He says, this is the word that was preached to you. This is the message. This is the message that began in Genesis 3.15. and has been preached by all the prophets of the old dispensation. It is now preached by the apostles in this new age of grace. You have heard this gospel. This is the gospel which says all men are sinners, lost and without hope because of the rebellion in their hearts. It is the message which boldly declares that salvation begins by God's sovereign choosing of those in eternity past who are to be his and predestining them to himself in Jesus Christ. It is the word that says Jesus Christ came into this world to die for his people. It is the hope that makes clear that God's purpose and plan can never be hindered nor stopped. It is the teaching that shows his people how to stand firm in the face of the, the persecution of unbelievers and the attack of the devil and his demons. It is the message found on the truth of the one who has sent it into this world. We do believe with all of our hearts I hope you all do, that God is sovereign, that he is in control of this world and all of its creatures and their actions. He has established his plan, and no man can interfere and disrupt that plan. That plan is clearly put forth in the scriptures. It is declared in the plan of redemption. It is revealed in the teaching of our Lord and Savior about himself and about his work. Jesus Christ came to show us our own sinfulness. He came to show us God's holiness and our need of cleansing in order to come into his presence. He also came to provide that cleansing. He accomplished through his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection victory, everything, everything needed for the salvation of his people. He also provided the heart needed to hear and understand this truth. With this new heart, with its gifts of faith and repentance, we are instructed to listen to his voice and to obey his commands. The only way you can do that is to take the truths put forth in this gospel message and hold tenaciously to them. The gospel that is preached and has been preached says, you must hear and understand this truth, that salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ that no one can come to Christ except the Father draws him, that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. 
This is not a contradiction. It's an expression of the first and second cause of salvation. God opens the heart by his divine grace, and the one whose heart is open hears the truth of the gospel and believes on the one sent to deliver that truth, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, this may seem complicated, but it's really not. As one called to preach the good news, it's my responsibility to try and make it clear. The message is clear. You are a sinner lost and without hope apart from Jesus Christ. There is only one way you can be saved, and that is by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The New Testament teaches this with great clarity. You are born again by the grace of God, and you are completely passive in this birth process. Once you are spiritually born, you are called to be very active. You're called to hear. You're called to obey God's word, and this is your responsibility. Peter, in this chapter, has given you great hope in that this is your responsibility. God has given you his Holy Spirit to ensure you're successful. Salvation is a gift from God to his people. You don't have to work to earn it. You don't have to pay any price to receive it. But once you have it, you have to work hard to show your love and appreciation for the one who has given it. If you're here this morning without knowing this great, glorious message of hope, you can leave with this most wonderful hope that you are now in God's family. How? By placing all of your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. There is no other way. There is no other way to know you belong to God than to come through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you ask in your word, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. But as we know, man failed on all you called him to do. Therefore, you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, come into man's place and complete for him everything he failed to do. He lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. Through him and through him alone, all who place their hope and trust in Christ will find the glory and the honor man was originally promised. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.